Okay, greetings everyone. Namaskan, Ajahn. So, welcome everyone to another Wednesday evening with the Clear Mountain Monastery community. Uh, We are very happy to have Ajahn Yanako, the abbot of Abayagiri, visiting the Sudhana Center, visiting here um, in Ukiah. So, Donjon, thank you for for coming. Um, So, I'll just read a quick bio for anyone who hasn't yet met Ajahn Yanako. Um, if you'd ever like to meet Ajahn Yanako, you can go and go to Abayagiri and uh, meet him in person. So, Ajahn Yanako was born and raised in California. In 2001, at the age of 20, he visited Abayagiri and decided to request Anagarika ordination, after which, in 2003, he was ordained as a bhikkhu. He received his basic training from Lumpur Pasano and Lumpur Amaro at Abayagiri. He's spent six years total uh, training in Thailand, and as of June 2020, Ajahn Yanako is now serving as the abbot of Abayagiri Buddhist Monastery. Um, so that's just in brief. Um, From 2018, was co-abbots with Ajahn Kurudamo, then he stepped back in June 2020, then I was sole abbot after, since then. And you came straight from Thailand into that role? Uh, yeah, December 18th, 2017, I came from Thailand, and then about... Early 2018 was trained in that role, take over from Lumpur Pasano. And you have served as an abbot, or at least acting abbot, in monasteries in Thailand as well. Is that in a monastery? Okay. Yeah, and Pujom Gong, Pujom Gong, small branch of uh, Wat Pananachat. Okay. Yeah. And uh, maybe short periods as interim or periods serving abbot. At Nanachat, maybe when Ajahn Kavali uh, was away. Or... I was uh, I covered for Ajahn Kavali, uh, doing abbot type duties for mm-hmm. forty five days at Nanachat. Okay. In uh, that was that was April May of twenty seventeen. Yeah. Okay. Well, I thought to uh, begin the interview with the Dhammapada quote, which is Dhammapada eighty, and it's the well known one that irrigators will shape the course of water and that fletchers or arrow smiths will shape the uh, you know, straighten arrows and woodworkers will bend or curve or work with the wood whereas the wise will train themselves and i feel like you have at least three of those four things you're not necessarily making arrows or bows um, not necessarily wise not necessarily wise yeah. to be doing that in the monastery um but you do have this additional one of not only training oneself, um, as the wise do, but in this role as abbot of training others. So I thought to maybe organize the uh, the talk, the conversation around these two broader themes of insights or lessons learned from being an abbot, because uh, I imagine the skills can transfer into people who are you know outside of a monastery, uh, and then also just yeah, you're an accomplished and uh, very skilled woodworker and basically can fix and have fixed most anything that has broken around the various different monasteries that you visited. So maybe starting with being an abbot. Um, so how, do you think there are lessons that transfer like from? Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's a huge learning curve being, being in an abbot position and, uh, in the Thai forest tradition, we say everybody's the abbot, not just one person. Mm-hmm. You know, that abbot in a, 
the word abbot is a very Christian word. So uh, Jawa Wat is the word in Thai, which is a little bit more like caretaker um, of the monastery. And they say, well, everybody in a good monastery, everybody's the Jawa Wat, everybody's the abbot. So everybody's looking after things. Everybody has a share in the monastery. And uh, I know Mopar Ban would say that in talks where you say everybody's the abbot. So, so yeah, I mean, I am in this position of being called an abbot. Uh, first and foremost, I'm a bhikkhu. So uh, uh, in the West, abbot is very much like an administrative role. So, uh, and I did take a break recently and then come back to start a new chapter of, of being abbot of Abayagiri. But the uh, um, holding it, learning how to hold it much more lightly in a much more sustainable way. So uh, it's an administrative role. There's a, there's just all sorts of, I don't even know where to start. There's all sorts of things to learn. And uh, sometimes it can seem kind of heavy or I can take things personally. I receive more criticism in, in a leadership role, but I also receive more praise. And uh, so the worldly dhammas are stronger. And uh, then it's a position of status. So although it is difficult in various ways. There are perks as well. So you get, you get treated really well when you go to other monasteries and um, it's a position of sacrifice because I don't always get to do what I want to do. I don't always get to go to the workshop and work on a woodworking project. You know, I, I just have to, I, I might have to do a teaching engagement or I might have to uh, deal with um, so training issues in the monastery. Uh, helping to train Anagarika's novices and, and the bhikkhus and just having to, uh, the only thing I can liken Abbot to, if people ask me, what is it like, is to Tudong, which is you're, when you're walking on pilgrimage on Tudong as a Theravada bhikkhu and you don't know where you're going to eat or sleep each day. And being Abbot is very much like that. Like you don't, I don't know what's going to happen each day. I don't know who's going to come to the monastery. I don't know who's going to leave all of a sudden. Um, I don't know exactly what I'm going to be faced with. So that's very good for mindfulness. So it is, if it's held in the right way, it is good for practice because uh, when the mind is very open to any possibility, it has to be very flexible. And that's very good for mindfulness. Did you find that difficult temperamentally? I know for myself, I just love structure. I love, you know, being able to predict and being in university, it's pretty easy to. I've got you know blocks of time on the schedule. I, here's what I do at that time. But I mean, the you might have a hard time being <laughs> <laughs> right. But but for yourself, like, was it a learning curve? Did that come naturally, or you? I mean, you've done a bunch of tudong as well, so you've been training yeah. in that. But tudong did prepare me well. Um, but it is a learning curve. Nothing could have prepared me for. It's kind of an interesting dynamic that before I actually got into the abbot position at Abayagiri where I was co-abbots with Ajahn Kurtadamo, um, I was, I knew it was going to be difficult, but I didn't really know what to expect. So, um, it was, I was practicing Bodh Gaya, making determinations at the Bodhi tree, asking the Buddha's Barami for help. If I, if I needed it to help me, you know, make it through this, these inevitable challenges that are going to happen. And, um, but I was, you know, I was prepared to go and, and I knew it was going to be difficult, didn't know what to expect. So then fast forward to 20, late 2022, December, 2022, when I decided to take a seven month break 
and um, be a bhikkhu again and not an abbot necessarily. And uh, then I remember going to Bodhgaya again, and it was a similar kind of experience as to before becoming abbot, but it, in a way it was actually harder to get myself to go back because then I knew what to expect. To come back. To and knowing back. what it was, knowing exactly what it was made it even harder to come back mm. again. So actually not knowing what it was was better mm. and it was actually easier to go and knowing what it was made it more difficult to go back. Could you say anything more about that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, about, I mean, both times you're maybe coming from Bodh Gaya, but, yeah. but this process of um, asking for help or what you were doing with the, the Buddhist Barami, I think that might be something people are unfamiliar yeah, with. Yeah, again, it's kind of hard to speak about, but it's acknowledging, it's acknowledging that I don't think I have the resources just myself to be in such a position, you know, having much work to do still in my own practice and of course, not being an arhant. So uh, having, realizing that I need a lot of help. So it's like lowering myself and being open to, to help that either the Buddha or people around me, the Dhamma, the Sangha, the Sangha might provide. So uh, I had to really shift my perspective, I think coming back for this next chapter, because it is a commitment and it is a long-term commitment. So um now I can say I'm holding things much more lightly than I was at first. And the learning curve is kind of evening out. Mm. And I can say that um, I'm matured a little bit more into the role of being a teacher. I guess at first I didn't realize that Abbott meant teacher, like public teacher or public figure. And um, I wasn't... On the Spirit Rock website, I just saw. Oh, am I? Yeah. Am I? Yeah. Okay. I didn't know. Sorry, I haven't sorry. looked. <laughs> That's good. That's good yeah. to know. Yeah. I might need to update my picture because I'm much older than the photos on the Baigiri website. So uh, <laughs> I think I need to. Still recognize that me. was from 10 years ago, I think, that photo. Okay. Was, uh, I need to have a more Abbott like photo, mm, maybe. Right. What would Abbott. that look like? Yeah. Maybe more gravitas. Gravitas. Okay. Kind of older, some white. Like some, if I could grow my beard out a little bit, and <laughs> I, I do have like a salt and pepper to oh, really? some white hairs now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, John, sorry to derail you. Um, I I am curious. I mean, there's no like book that's like how to be an abbot. No, but, there's not. Yeah. But it seems like you, you're really being looked, I mean, not looked after, but you have access to all of these teachers like Lumpur Liam, Lumpur Sumedho, it sounds like are giving you, of course, Lumpur Pasano giving you very personal advice yeah. and time. Could you yeah. say anything about that? Well, I have a huge gratitude for Lumpur Pasano, especially now, now uh, knowing that he has been an abbot for 36 plus years, both in Thailand and in the West, and, and seeing that um, kind of dawning on me what his sacrifices were, excuse me, and um, just what he's had to go through. And uh, however, yeah, some challenges I've undergone, I've actually gone to Lumpur Pasano, who's who we now call the guiding elder. I've actually gone to him and asked for consultation. And he's actually, at times, he's actually said to me, you know, I don't know, nobody's ever presented me with that particular challenge. So for me, it's kind of like, it's, Abayagiri is a different community now than when Lumpur Pasano and Ajahn Amaro were abbots co-abbots um i mean when i first went to a bike 
when I was in Anagarga, there was only six or seven community members, maybe eight maximum living there. And now you have uh, 14 bhikkhus and novice and three Anagarikas. You have, so you have 19 monastics, um, 19 or 20, 21 monastics at any given time with all the bhikkhus and novices and Anagarikas. And um, are they able to hear okay? Yeah, that's what I was checking. It oh, looks okay. like it. Yeah. Okay. That's good. <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to repeat myself now for, for everybody. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> I would but, listen to it again happily. But, yeah, yeah, but uh, the um, so it's a bigger community, which presents different challenges than say Lumpur Pasanajarmer had in the beginning. You know, when, with just a few community members, there was very high quality training, and then if it's as the community gets bigger, you know, myself, I might be stretched thin or dispersed a bit more, and the training can suffer in some ways. So trying to find creative solutions for that. And it, it just presents new challenges. Everybody, I mean, you'll see in any tradition of Buddhism, not just Theravada Buddhism, but um, I've seen documentaries about Chinese Buddhist monks and uh, Tibetan and everybody, every single individual who ordains what, whatever tradition is, everybody brings their karmic baggage with them. So in a community, every single individual's got your karmic baggage and I've got my own karmic baggage as well. And so it's really testing to always try to find creative solutions for how to encourage people along the path, how to train people. Um, my own, and to be true to my own character, my own character is not, I'm not someone who's good at pointing things out to people or, or criticizing people. I'm, uh, and at first, maybe I tried that. I tried to uh, I think Lopar Pasana was a bit better at that. And I tried to copy that at first and it didn't go very well. So I found uh, I just have to find my own way and be my own person and bring my own style to it or else it's unsustainable. This, I mean, the English word abbot originally meant like father. Mm -hmm. And one thing which I bet would be difficult is that, I mean, you're not, when you came to Abayagiri, I mean, you would have been in your early 20s. Lumpur Pasana would have been maybe already in his 50s, if not, yeah, probably in his 50s. Um, so, and now you're maybe in your mid 40s. So is it, what is, does it feel like being a father? I mean, I know I looked up, I looked up to Lumpur Pasana, still do, as like a father figure. And does it, does it, does that fit? Or is it more a teacher? Or is it a brother to the other monks or to the people who come or? Uh, uh, it's a it's a very familial position. So uh, interestingly, I had the one monk who has referred to me as a father is old enough to be my father. So that's Tanrakito. Rakito. And uh -huh. uh, he said I he thought I had a fatherly kind of energy, yeah. and he's old enough to be my father. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it is it is very much like being a parent, and um, and that can be very rewarding, and it can also be very difficult. Um, I know, uh, there's an extreme kind of analogy I heard, and it's not always like this, but sometimes it is where it's being an abbot is like being a father with a lot of teenage children who know better than you. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not always like that though. Right. It's, uh, you know, but sometimes it can feel like that. Right. In the dynamics, I remember someone said this about Lumpur when I came Lumpur Pasano and Lumpur Ajahn Amaro was still there. And someone said, oh, yeah, you know, like you have to figure out how to relate to them. Like, lom, lom, they said it's like pa and ma. 
If you're Lumpur Pa Sano is like the dad and Ajahn Ah Ma Ro is like the mom. And yeah. if you want to get something, you go to like there's like different ways that yeah. you yeah. know, the this kind of scheming mind, which is obviously gonna come up because yeah, human minds are coming to the monastery. That must be difficult, like people relating to you with all sorts of different motives. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I all I can do is try to be as genuine as possible and as straightforward as possible. And um interestingly, I did I've learned a lot from some of the non-monks who have been associated with the Bayagiri, like Wayne Bashore, who's passed away now, but he was our project manager for many, many years. And um, he was a he was the mayor of Willits for eight years, so for two terms, and he knew about leadership, and he gave me some encouragement when I first got into the abbot position, okay. and actually called me one day and gave me encouragement about, not about work at a Bayagiri, but about being abbot mm. and being in a leadership position. And so uh, I noticed something I noticed about him was he just uh, had very, you have to have very clear standards. So you can't kind of be like, well, you know, it's kind of okay in this position and not okay in that situation. And sometimes you can do it like this. You actually have to say, nope, we do it like this. And so I've done that more and more and it makes my life easier because it's like, nope, this is the standard. We just do it like this. Mm -hmm. That's just what we do here. And I don't have to explain it. But uh, rather than kind of beat around the bush and be vague about it, it's better just to say, you know, we shave our head on the day before one pra, on the new moon and the full moon. That's what we do. Yeah. You don't do it any other way. Or we, uh, you know, or somebody, you know, people would like sometimes like grow out their beards a little bit, maybe shave every four days, every five days. And so like, I just come up with a standard about it. You know, don't let it go more than two days. That's the core walk. Just like, just be really clear about it. Because mm -hmm. um, sometimes I'd be like, well, you know, the Buddha said two finger breaths is okay. And, but just, you just, that's not a clear standard mm -hmm. for people. So you just need to be really, really clear. Mm -hmm. So I found things are lighter when I'm clearer about right. things like that. Yeah. I always appreciate it when Ajahn Amaro or Ajahn Pasana, or Lumpur Pasana or yourself, yeah. the, the clarity is quite helpful for the community members. No, you know, what's going on. It's yeah. not like things are going to change tomorrow. And some things I have changed from the way Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Amar did it. So they had this standard of, if you leave for less than seven days, you don't have to pay respects to the elders. And I changed that standard a few years ago. I changed it to three days, um, particularly because during the Vasa period where we can't leave more than six nights anyway, we'd almost never be paying respects to each other. And then people wouldn't be learning how to pay respects, especially mm -hmm. the junior people. And paying respects is a beautiful thing good to teach people how to do. So I just said, okay, three days. But at first, before I did that, I was saying, well, you know, seven days is a little bit much, you know, maybe we could be a little bit less, but then I thought, no, it has to be clear. So three days and three days is the Wapapong standard. So mm -hmm. I love Wapapong. So mm -hmm. I love to take on things that they take on. So I said, okay, well, we can do that as a standard. Speaking of if you what Nompapong, so that's for people who don't know, that's Lumpur, Lumpur Cha's monastery where Lumpur Liam is the abbot now. Um, I'm curious, either other things that you've, other Korwat, other monastery regulations, protocols that you've taken from them, and also just advice. I think you'd mentioned to me before that Lumpur Liam really has, you know, I don't know about taking you under his wing, but when you'll see him, um, he'll really give time to you and uh, give you advice. If you could speak about that to the monastery and Lumpur Liam. 
I'm not sure if I have that close of a relationship with Uncle Liam, and I've only really lived with him for five months. Um, other when I spent the Vasa, I spent my seventh Vasa at Wadalpaplong. So I was there for five months and did take Nisaya to dependence on Lumpur and got to be his attendant for part of that time. But that's really all the time I've spent with him other than his visits to Abayagiri and uh, maybe going to pay respects or seeing him at Wapananachat or visiting Wapapong when I was living at Pujongam. So just on and off, always going and paying respects and making a point to be around him a bit. Um, but I, I don't think I have necessarily a special relationship with Lung Perlium. I do feel like he looks after me. So I, uh, like I've had dreams about him or like, I feel like he, he does, uh, he does pay attention and he knows who the abbots are. And I know recently, uh, there was a complaint, uh, that, uh, there's a monastery in the U S that's claiming to be a Wapapong branch monastery and it's maybe not. And somebody complained to Lumpur Liam and he said, oh, you have to check with Nyanako about that. So like he'll, he'll defer people to me if it's in the U S and so feel like I'm on the radar and uh, he wants me to do well for sure. And uh, probably be visiting next year if his oh, health wow. allows. Um, but, uh, but we'll see. Well, his health isn't great. Mm -hmm. He has, he has heart trouble. So, um, but yeah, I know Lumpur Sumedo. Lumpur Sumedo has given me special meta as an abbot and talked about his own challenges and that's been incredibly helpful for me so he visited for a month last year and just having some one-on-one -on -one time with him that he, he made time for any pearls of wisdom from either of those uh definitely from Lumpur Samedo something that stuck out for me from that particular visit was uh we had a actually had a group visit with him um in Sandy Bihara where he was staying so across the street from the cloister area, our elders residence, and and he was there and he was in the living room. He agreed to meet with the Sangha there and do a Q&A session. So uh, he met with the Sangha and then at a certain point it was, he was getting tired. So it's time for people to leave. And, and so people left, but then he just started, he kind of tractor beamed me and started talking to me. And Ajahn Chunda also then stayed as well. So it was just me and Lumpur uh, Sumedho, Ajahn Chunda. And, um, he started telling stories about some of his challenges from when he was an abbot. And uh, one thing he said, so there was some ex really extreme challenges. I don't know anybody who's had challenges like one person made had, you know, starting Amaravati and Chithurst and just some of the things that happened there and things that he got blamed for and uh, getting betrayed and stabbed in the back even um, by different community members. Mm. And uh, so, uh, yeah, he talked about there was there was one point where um, it was just there was a lot of disharmony in the community and there was a lot of difficult meetings happening. And uh, then he said, he said, you know, with difficult intercommunal dynamics uh, and just difficulties that happen in life, no matter how hard you try to avoid difficulties and no matter how hard you try to organize your life so that you'll have less difficulties, they're just going to happen no matter what. And then when they happen, you just deal with them. So don't be afraid of difficulties happening because you just, they're just going to happen. You know that these challenges are inevitable and, you know, don't spend too much time trying to avoid these kind of things, because even if you try to avoid them, they're going to happen anyway. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then he said that with, 
absolutely zero resentment. Mm -hmm. So the way he told me that was very inspiring mm -hmm. that he had no, he has no resentment from the difficulties that have happened to him. He has no resentment and he's completely forgiving with, you know, any, any wrongs that may have been done to him or injustices. He's doesn't, he's not holding on to it. He's got no anger about it. He's got no resentment. And that was very palpable. So I uh, thought that was some really, not only was the advice good, but the way he gave me that advice was very good, very useful. I keep that in mind all the time. I've, I've had this uh, thought before that being an abbot, there's a, there's this paradox to it that, um, you know, I've asked, I remember Ajahn Pasan, if anyone asked him like, oh, how did you become an abbot? Or what is it like um, um, just, what is it like being an abbot and, or why did you become an abbot? And basically he'll joke around and say, because I could, I wasn't smart enough to run away or, you know, something yeah. like this. And, you know, similar answers maybe from Ajahn Amaro, you know, about how um, it's not a role to be desired or looked to be grasped after. And in, you know, the Ajahn Chah tradition, you can't really do that. You can't really scheme to become a senior monk or an abbot. Um, so there is this aspect of like, you know, the Ajahn saying that, you know, they wouldn't, they're not actively seeking it and that um, it's a lot of trouble. You know, there's some trouble to it. As you're saying, there's difficulty, but then also all the monks that we've named so far, Lumpur Pasano, Lumpur Samedo, Lumpur Liam, basically any abbot that I've met, they're impressive people. It's like, they're the most impressive monastics or, I mean. Well, kindness, kindness, mm -hmm. uh, abbots have to be kind. So the training of others and the running of the monastery has to come from kindness and compassion. It can't just be, you know, turning into this curmudgeon old abbot who's walking around with their head down, <laughs> muttering criticisms <laughs> about everything and every everyone and everything and just right. kind of nobody can do anything right. Nobody yeah. listens to me. And you know, then it wouldn't be coming out of much kindness and compassion. But this thing is, it seems like it, being an abbot is almost a forcing function for maturity. It's like yeah. taking on the responsibility actually matures people. And yeah. for me, like, you know, was doing this project, Clear Mountain up in Seattle with Ajahn Nisibo kind of at the helms. We're not sure what kind of language we're going to use about abbot or not, but um, just, yeah, it's possible to coast as a junior monastic and, you know, putting oneself in a role like this or um, work or, monk or anything, yes, yeah. stores monk, just volunteering for and. There can be a fear of failure in terms of, well, if I volunteer for that, I might mess up. And and so therefore I won't volunteer for it. But really the right attitude for progress along the path and for mature that type of maturity is I will volunteer for it and I will fail. Mm. And it's okay. I will learn from those failures, I'll learn from those mistakes. Mm. So and that's okay. Mm. It's okay to fail. Actually, learning how to fail is a very important skill. Mm in the practice because you will fail. Everybody will fail. I will continue to fail and learn from it in various ways. Wow, that's great. It, do, is this like an affirmation? I mean, will you like, I mean, we don't use mirrors really, but will you? I will fail. <laughs> yeah, I will fail. <laughs> you, can, <laughs> you can imagine I'm you saying, I will fail. <laughs> and it's okay. Yeah. And, and it will happen because the Buddha failed. Yeah. The Buddha failed when he did his austerities. I mean, he failed, he failed at various things, but he learned his failures what, or what eventually led to his liberation because he learned from them.
something you do in which Lumpur Pasano does, did, uh, Lumpur Samita, Lumpur Liam, is basically leading from the front. It's not like you're back in the office, you know, you're not like the white collar monk or you're not the they called it administrator golden horse leadership golden yeah. horse leadership where you st- you sit back in the back of the room on a golden horse and tell everybody what to do that's that's the basically the manager or the you're in the office yeah, yeah. okay that's golden horse whereas what's the name for the leading from the front uh i don't know if there is a name but we could probably come up with one yeah. uh like the uh the general who runs into battle in the front groups nice you know. <laughs> We'll, we'll shorten that. We'll figure. It out. <laughs> but that it is very true. If the if the general doesn't go into battle with his troops, maybe that's not using martial terminology isn't always the best. Not everyone connects with that, but never mind. Um, you know, it's uh, if he doesn't go into battle or be with his troops with his men, then then they eventually don't consider him the leader. They eventually somebody else will come out yeah. as the leader. One interesting thing, though, about abbotting is be careful about uh, wanting to be an abbot. Yeah. Um, that's very, because uh, you mentioned Lumpur Pasano not having the intelligence to run away. That's what, how he framed it. But I also, I, uh, I remember asking Lumpur Pasano when I was more junior, what if nobody wants to be the abbot when you want to step back? Mm-hmm. And he said, if somebody wants to be the abbot, run. Right. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I've heard that before. I've heard that before. And, uh, yeah. So he has said that a few times. And um, I only recently found out during this trip in Thailand that because uh, people would ask me, well, why did Lumpur Pasano choose you? Mm-hmm. You know, at first, Dutch and Kurodama and myself, but then myself, just just myself after that. You know, why did he why did he choose you? Why was he OK with you? And I would answer, well, there was just nobody else. That was mm-hmm. I don't know why he I don't know why. I guess there was just nobody else. I was that seniority. I'd been there long enough. I know the monastery, um, you know, maybe somebody better will come along and then I can just step back. But actually I found out recently that uh, when I was in Thailand, that uh, had, somebody had asked that question of Lumpur Pasano, oh, why did you choose Nyanako? He said, well, there was all these monks who came to me volunteering that, you know, I could, they could be the abbot and when it was needed. And he said there was really only one monk who didn't do that, and that was Nyanako. So that's mm-hmm. why he that's why he thought, okay, well that's you know, it's good to be reluctant. And um mm-hmm. that was one of the main his main considerations. Yeah, it, it's hard about I never I haven't figured this out, like being reluctant, not putting oneself forward, like this Japanese phrase of you know, the high nail gets the hammer or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um the high the one that sticks gets, out, gets hammered down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So not putting oneself forward, but also like we were talking about earlier, you know, how taking on responsibility, even if it's, you know, something like a stores monk. And as you were saying, like just volunteer and then like, so how to balance those two things. No, it's true. It is a good question. Cause, cause being in that abbot or that leadership role of a monastery is, does have a different feeling or a different energy than just being the work monk or the stores monk or things that you could volunteer for. And, but it's similar in a way, like sometimes, somebody might volunteer to be the work monk and it's like they're volunteering they want to you know have a say over what other people are doing it's not maybe not so compassionate Mm. so uh when somebody volunteers to be an abbot one has to look at the intention is do they are they looking for power are they looking for to be able to have some control over other people's lives 
or is it purely out of compassion, kindness, and compassion to really want to help out and to really be able to step back and continue to learn for oneself and not get too much into that kind of power role because it is a position of power Mm. and it's a position of authority and that can be abused. And you see it in politics, you have abuse of power. You really do. It does become a little bit like politics. And even though we're a small time compared to politics, but it does become politics in terms of your managing groups of people who have given up their entire lives to come to the monastery. Could, could I ask about, um, there's a practice, which I think you used to have, it may have been before you ordained, but um, of doing the great compassion mantra. You mentioned compassion and um, I've done, I practiced with that a bit. Actually, I'm doing that now. I'm yeah. trying to memorize that, that one now. That's a project I'm doing now. And do you feel that when you've done it in the past or when you do it now, like it actively does increase your capacity for or desire to be compassionate? Or? Well, uh Partly. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about compassion is because I I only think I'm really learning more about compassion now because compassion has been a big theme for me this year, but uh, compassion is interesting because in the past, when I thought about compassion, I thought, wow, you know, it's this really nice, wonderful, soft um, state that's very beautiful and lovely. And yes, that is true. But what I didn't realize was the actual practice of deepening compassion is actually incredibly difficult and painful. It's actually a very difficult practice and it's a very painful practice, not because I'm taking on pain from anybody else, but because uh, to actually go out of my way to care that much more is, is difficult, right? It's not like, Oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to be more compassionate. It's hmm. like, Oh, this is, <laughs> this is hard. <laughs> I've Real compassion is difficult. So do you have, I mean, you mentioned that the great compassion mantra helps to some extent, but I mean, yeah, you're kind of the person I'm, I'm continually impressed when I go to a Baigiri and you're just so open. Like, I feel like you're open to me and whatever I want to, whatever thing Kobilo's on about. Yeah. But, well, uh, that's more, maybe more kindness. That's maybe not necessarily compassion, mm-hmm. but it's just kindness. Uh, that would be more meta, just wanting to be, wanting to be kind, wanting people to feel comfortable. Uh, and because when you're trusting, when you go out of your way to trust somebody, then they actually become more trustworthy. That's, that's just more meta. Yeah. Um, compassion is more like uh, being able to be present for people's suffering. And that's, it's a bit of a different energy than metta. So metta is wishing people well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, you come and visit a Bayagiri, I'll wish you well, I'll be open to receiving you. Um, but compassion is, if you come to me and you're suffering, you know, in the past, I might just go, oh, I don't want to be around people who are suffering. I want to wish people well, that's mm-hmm. fine. That's mm-hmm. fair and good. And um, if people are happy, I want to be around them. But if people are suffering, you know, wishing that that suffering go away or actually trying to do something that's going to help alleviate their suffering. That's more difficult. Mm -hmm. So that's more compassion is wishing that people are free from suffering. It's a different energy than metta and it's more powerful. And I think those Brahma Viharas are actually in a, in order for a certain reason, it's order of difficulty. So you have metta, karuna, mudita being more difficult even than karuna, real mudita, real rejoicing and and mudita is supposed to be for the removal of resentment. So uh, compassion's for the removal of thoughts of cruelty. Metta's for the removal of thoughts of hostility or ill will. 
uh, Upeka. Do you know what that is for removing? Um, Donus? That's for removing lust. Lust. Yeah. Um, yeah. And okay. uh, I recently reviewed a uh, Sariputta Sutta at the end of Deacon Nikaya where he talks about that. Hmm. How uh, liberation of the mind through Upeka is for the full removal of lust. Hmm. So, uh, right. These right. Are the Dhamma has these interesting yeah, that is angles to it. Yeah. Um, well, I feel a little bit, uh, I'm monopolizing doing the conversation. We've got um, about five to 10 minutes. Um, I might look for questions specifically uh, about being an abbot or being in a managerial position just because, and I'll have to ask you again to come for a talk about woodworking and okay. carpentry. Um, yeah. But yeah, and if I can't, there's, so, there's it's so rich just hearing about um, insights from abbotting. Um, Okay. Okay. Greetings from Ajanisimo. He's watching, and um, yeah, people saying they appreciate your talk from about failure leads to success. Um, here we go. There's a question. So, are there any particular conditions that make monastic training in North America distinctive compared to training in Thailand? Yeah, I mean, uh, Lungbar Pasano was talking about this at the Wanpra the other day. Um, it's it's not necessarily the geographical location which makes it distinctive, but it's the people. So people with their different tendencies and uh, conditioning, different kama than, than you would have, say, in Thailand. Um, and of course, North America being Americans specifically, um, you do have unique challenges. Uh, one is um, faith. People have a harder time with faith in general, whereas your average Thai person is probably going to have a bit more of a natural faith in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, bright, a brightness of mind that arises when you recite the word Buddha or you do a mantra that you connect with. Whereas, uh, you know, we might have a, more of a scientific mindset and it might be harder for us. So, uh, and, you know, people who go to the monastery, it might not necessarily be out of faith. It might be out of curiosity or a passing interest because if you've read the Tao Te Ching or you've read some of the suttas or the Dhammapada and it sounds really amazing and interesting. But uh, one, and we're very idealistic, so we have a hard time, say, going on meditation retreat and seeing that the mind is really messy because we want our mind to be ideal. We want our mind to be beautiful and peaceful and full of metta, karuna, mudita, nupeka, but we dig in there and we go on meditation retreat and we look at our mind and it's actually really messy and it's a lot of work and uh, we we don't like that. So that's, that's a very American thing. We're very idealistic. We want to sit down and we think maybe we want to sit down and meditate and our mind is going to be full of peace and love and bliss and really it's just junky and dirty and messy <laughs> in there and we need to just wade through this our karmic baggage everybody's got different karmic baggage but we do share a lot as as americans one of uh when i first went to thailand for my third vasa when i went to thailand for one year away um, both ajahn amaro and ajahn pasano told me when i was taking leave of them and as i think it was ajahn amaro who said you'll realize how american you are and at the time i thought hmm i i don't know if i agree with that but even that thought was an American conditioning thought. <laughs> and, um, and then I did actually through that year realize that uh, 
oh yeah, yeah, my mind is completely American and I have a lot to learn from Thailand, Thai language and just Thai people. And uh, it's, I'm very, very grateful now to be able to perhaps undo a little bit of that conditioning. I'm still very American in the way my mind works, but to be able to actually get a bit more intuitive, it's like even language, learning the Thai language. Thai is a language of feeling. Hmm. And in Thai, you are a part of what you're talking about. Hmm. You are, you're, you know, it's very embodied. Hmm. And, you know, we're getting to that a little bit now in this day and age in, in the Dhamma circles in America. But English is a language of ideas. Thai is a language of feelings. So English being a language of ideas, and it's like, it's like me separate from what I'm talking about. You know, I'm talking about Dhamma and mm -hmm. mindfulness and meditation, and I'm talking about the mind and the knowing, but I'm not talking about it in a way where like, I'm really like completely embodied in what I'm talking about. Or in a group, you like Thai Rao. It can be me or it can be us or. Yeah, there's that as well. Um, and, and even though I'm not 100% fluent in Thai, I can express where I'm at in terms of my emotions and feelings much more accurately and much more easily in Thai than I can in English because English is a more about ideas and it, theories even. Right. So, uh, so, and we, we like to, we have scientific mindset, so we like to objectify things. Mm -hmm. We want to be very objective because that's very scientific. So, but what we don't realize is, what the Dhamma says is that we always have bias, no matter how objective we try to be, we're not truly objective because our biases, this is called agati, and the mind is getting off on a different tangent, but it's perhaps useful that the agati, the biases are actually going to color how we see the world. So the mind is not purified yet. So it has these biases. And no matter how objective we try to be, these biases are going to actually color how we're mm. studying things in a scientific way. Mm. So actually, uh, you know, science is a complete, perfect science would be completely objective. Buddhist practice is actually completely subjective. So, you know, it's a very American thing to say, well, what is the knowing to objectify it? Well, you can't objectify it. The knowing is completely subjective and it's our experience wow. that we're studying. So in a way, it's the opposite of science, actually. It's, it's an inner science, so it's subjective. So... The knowing is just the knowing. You can't objectify it. It's not like a ball of light in the back of your mind that's mm. doing something. It's not a thing. It it is the knowing. It's that's all it does. It's known by its function, wow. which is knowing. We have so and it is what we are. We're it's completely subjective. You mm. can't take it and study it, it, it except in a subjective way. Mm. Wow. I don't would you have any uh closing thoughts either on that subject? I mean it was just it's getting... well let's talk about woodworking a little bit um, <laughs> the dhamma of woodworking is is to talk about suffering actually to talk about dukkha and um this is the dhamma just to close on a completely random different note <laughs> the dhamma of woodworking is uh, the dhamma of suffering because uh the beauty in the wood when you have say a madrone tree that we did our shrine out of this it's got all this these bends and figuring and beauty and you sand it more and more and it gets more and more beautiful but that figuring comes from the suffering of the tree when the tree bent under its own weight and it was strained and had to grow in a different way in order to straighten itself back up because of the weight that was causing it stress so the beauty 
the beauty in the wood comes from the suffering and the character of the wood comes from the suffering that it overcame to keep growing. And so that's very, uh, that's the Dhamma of woodworking. And you just <laughs> you talk to yourself with suffering and talk yourself into another interview. That's, <laughs> that's, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Probably talk about that. Tonight. Talk tonight. All right. Um, well, yeah, Tanajan uh, Nyaniko um, is going to be the visiting monk from Abayagiri every Wednesday, uh, the second Wednesday of the month. He teaches at Sudan. Not every time, just this Not time. Him, right. This but one of the Abayagiri. Yeah. One of the Abayagiri teachers comes in tonight. It's Ajahn Nyaniko if you're in the area. Uh, and everyone else can keep tuning in. Um, we'll move over to Zoom. Um, maybe Ajahn Nisbo, if you're still there, you could put the link. Thank you. You did that. Um, so people can go over there for a more interactive experience and wish everybody well. And Ajahn, uh, um, yeah, so wish everybody well and see you next week. All right. Thank All you, right. Ajahn. Sadhu.